podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Danny Antman, the author of Wired for God, Adventures of a Jewish Yogi. When the Judaism of her childhood doesn't satisfy Danny Antman's yearning for spiritual awakening, she embarks on a quest for a spiritual path. Danny finds herself immersed in the world of yoga, energy healing, and Kabbalah, but her journey of inner transformation has only just begun. A healing crisis, misplaced trust, and a failed marriage intensify her desire for a teacher who can lead her to self-realization. Her prayers are answered in the form of a realized adept, a swami from the faraway shores of Rishikesh, India, who initiates her in his lineage of kundalini science, the study of the divine force within every human being that is the initiator of spiritual growth. And so begins an incredible inner journey as Danny dedicates herself to a spiritual practice aimed at the redirection and completion of a challenging kundalini process related to her Jewish past. Paradoxically, with the completion of her process, she experiences a triumphant return to the religion of her birth. Wired for God is the candid and compelling memoir of Danny Antman's spiritual journey from mystical Judaism through kundalini science and back again, told in a conversational and informal style. Her story gives inspiration and hope to all sincere seekers looking to make real spiritual progress and find their own unique spiritual path. As an internationally known energy healer and interfaith minister in Santa Barbara, California, Danny Antman has been at the forefront of energy medicine and healing since 1992, when she graduated from the Barbara Brennan School of Healing. Danny was a senior teacher at the School for Non-Dual Healing and Awakening for over nine years and has led workshops at the Asalen Institute, La Casa de Maria, and the Lionheart Institute for Transpersonal Energy Healing. Danny has advanced training in working with PTSD and trauma. Danny is the author of Wired for God, Adventures of a Jewish Yogi, a memoir of spiritual awakening. She is also dedicated to helping others progress on their spiritual path and currently offers spiritual awakening support groups via Zoom. To learn more about Danny and her work, please visit dannyantman.com. Here is the interview with Danny Antman. In your own words, who is Danny Antman? 
Ah, that's a good question. In terms of awakening, we can say no one, nobody. But in terms of what I do in my life, I work as an energy healer and spiritual counselor. And one led to the other. I started out as an energy healer and gradually entered onto what one calls the spiritual path, which is really the quest to know who one is and what reality is. And um, eventually you find out that reality is not what you thought it was. So the, the self that you thought it was eventually sort of dissolves. One of the bigger gateways of awakening is that you no longer identify with a very conditioned self and that is also the same with healing work, that eventually when you do enough healing work, you no longer identify with your conditioned self. And the healing work is no longer needed in a way. Well, I think they both parallel each other. I'm still doing my own healing work. It's gotten less uh, focused on my childhood and early conditioning. But I, I feel like they're, the two always go together. Yeah, that's a great question to ask you about healing, if it ever ends. Well, it's a really good question. You know, healing and perhaps what is freedom. So I think when you've healed enough of your childhood conditioning and your traumas, there's really a greater sense of freedom in your life. And then we still find ourselves having triggers, you know, so someone yeah. new comes into your life and you're triggered. And what's happened for me is I'm adept at identifying my triggers and working with them internally now versus needing like a psychotherapist to process it for me or with me. I've done a lot of psychotherapy, so I'm not putting that down. But you, you start to be able to work with yourself, you know, which is great. And the more you do that, the more you're free, the more you're awake. <laughs> That's how I find them related. Mm -hmm. It's true. I love the way you connected healing to freedom. Yeah. Beautifully said. Before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Wired for God, Adventures of a Jewish Yogi, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. And my first question had to be this one. What, where, and who is God to you? And how are we all wired for God? Oh, beautiful question. Most people would say, of course, we can't define God. And then they seem to try, right? <laughs> so in True. That, that attempt to define God. But I will say this, that when I was young, I did not know I was spiritual, but I always had a presence that I talked to that was like my guide. And gradually, when I began to have the big questions, what is God? What is life? What's reality? God was an other that I prayed to, you know, for help, for guidance. And eventually, through the spiritual process, that God disappears. and you find that, I found at least, that there was just presence and a unification with that presence or that, even presence might be too much of a defined word, but there was some kind of opening to that which can't be defined because there's not a self present when 
there's this opening to that. You know, again, the words are really tricky. But the, the sense of an I and a thou disappeared. And then it came back in a sense, not, not that I ever lost the merging, but for me, it's okay to both pray to a personal God and know that I'm at one with all of reality and, and the that that we can't name. So under duress, I, I'll, I'll pray to God <laughs> and I'll know I'm one with it. <laughs> so it's an inter- interesting paradox, isn't it? But I, I truly don't consider God as part of any one religion or outside of my own self with a capital S. Well, I love the way yeah, you talk about this doing in a way whatever you want because now you know you have the understanding or the knowing so that's freedom that sounds like freedom to me yeah i don't have to believe in a god i i have no i know god you know whatever we want to call god it's it's a knowing of deep a knowing through deep presence and awareness How wonderful. I love that. I love your wisdom already (laughs) in the beginning of the conversation. What is life to you, Danny? What is this experience? Not about, but what is it? Wow, that's a really deep question. (laughs) Let me answer sort of through a back channel. I've been thinking about the word consecration when we consecrate ourselves to something. And In the past, I would have said that without, again, identifying this with a particular religion, I would have said my life is consecrated to knowing God. But now I might say that my life is consecrated to life itself. And by saying that, I would say that everything that appears in consciousness in in life, whatever we call life, our daily life, our spiritual life, our emotional life, is that. So I'm consecrated to living that consciously and and not going numb or deadening this experience. And saying that, I'm also aware of the times I go numb. I mean, we're living in really crazy times, you know, with a lot of violence. And it's it's really a challenge to know that all of that is included in what we call life and that we somehow have to learn how to be present to that. You know, it, it's it, we're in really difficult times right now. Life is difficult right now for many people. What do you think is the opposite of life? Well, <laughs> I don't know because it's um, birth and death are a continuum for me. So I like the saying life after life. (laughs) Mm. Um, So I don't know whether life has an opposite. It's not death. Is it deadness? Possibly. Mm. You know, we're we're closing down towards uh, the life force itself. But um, you may have read in my book that I had a near-death experience And that experience showed me that life was present when we're not in the body. I know that for sure. And I'm on the board of Santa Barbara Near-Death Experiencers Group. And I've heard so many stories about how life continues after the death of the body. 
So I'm really on board with life after life. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. So perhaps it's the experience of consciousness, you know. What do you think is the uh, purpose of this experience? Is there a destination? Maybe it's in the in the limits between the physical birth and the physical death of life. I think we're here to learn and we're here to know source again whatever you want to call that word whether you call it god or simply that or that which has no name i think we're here to learn and develop ourselves as as souls having this human experience yeah that is so interesting lessons and then lessons that lead, would lead us to would you say happiness or a pleasant experience in the human body wisdom I, I like that better. <laughs> a lot of suffer, you know, on this thing. And, you know, as a healer, I talk to a lot of people with serious illness like cancer. And, um, you know, almost to a person, every everyone I've met that has, that has recovered from cancer has said it was a blessing in their life and that they learned so much about themselves and about love and about life and about relationship through having a life-threatening illness. So like there it is, this paradox between our struggles and wisdom and how we learn. That can take lifetimes, <laughs> learning how to. It's different than learning. It, it puts it in a different context. We can choose to um, grow from our supposed suffering and have a wider lens of growth and wisdom and intimacy even through things that seem to be great suffering. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And do you have a vision for a new reality? Such important questions. Well, I think certainly we need compassion for each other's uh, suffering and path and um, empathy. Um, two really great qualities on the spiritual path, compassion and empathy. And the prerequisite for those two qualities is deep listening to each other. You know, uh, we can't have empathy unless we can really hear what the other is saying. And these are skills that we can learn, you know. Um, the second part of the question was, tell me again. What is your vision if you have this idea, a vision for a new world, a new reality? Well, I certainly would like us to be caring for each other and for our planet in a lot better manner than we're doing now. And I would love to see us having leaders with real wisdom who have gone through actually an awakening process. We, you know, our founding fathers were brilliant men. And not that they were perfect. There were certainly deep, you know, difficulties that they were facing in the world. But they were wise beings. And um, hoping by the next election mm -hmm. we have a wiser being in office. I'm not into politics for some reason, not interested. Do we have a candidate that is enlightened or it is uh, spiritually evolved at this time? I wouldn't say so. Uh -huh. Oh, no. So uh, We don't go too deeply into that, but I don't believe we do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. So let's not go deep into it, like, as you said. My next question is about love. What is love to you, Danny? Well, 
for me, it's the heart of compassion where our love can extend beyond our immediate family and mates and pets to the larger world and, and people that perhaps have different, different circumstances than we do. And recently I had this experience where there was an opening in my heart that came unbidden, like I wasn't meditating. It just felt like my heart was stretched beyond where it had been previously. And I found myself really mushy, not in a sentimental way, but just open and open to people's just glorious beauty, you know, the exquisiteness of every human being, as well as their pain. And for a day or so, the two were equal. And then that subsided, but it felt like a very significant shift where I could just be open and loving without having any agenda about it. You know, no possessiveness, no need to attach or possess the object, but really just see clearly through love's eyes, I would say, through my heart's eyes. Yeah. What a wonderful state of being, it sounds like. And it comes and goes. I would hope that that would be permanent at some point. What is your understanding and idea of inner peace? I guess when there are not a lot of waves in my psyche, my mind, and there's a kind of deep appreciation and contentment, no matter what is happening. And I can't say that I have that all the time, but I have it a lot of, t a lot of the time. And I cultivate it through meditation practice, you know, where, where you watch your thoughts, you watch your emotions, you're, you're noticing what's happening and noticing that whatever those ripples are, they're not you. They're not your essential self. What is the role of the ego in service of the higher self, let's say? You know, it's kind of like the house manager. <laughs> the house manager. <laughs> if we didn't have it at all, I don't know that we'd be able to <laughs> function. Um, so some trace of it will remain to, to function in this world. You know, it's, it's more about looking at how it's a how it functions to um, form a self-image that we then get attached to and believe to be the real self. If you're not attached to it and not believing it, it kind of relaxes. You know, you re it, the ego structure relaxes, and it's just really not a problem. You don't have to work at, quote, totally eliminating it. It's more about the image of it that we hold, you know, the, the image of our roles, the image of what we look like, of um, our function in the world and our sense of um, worthlessness or aggrandizement, you know, between those two places that we all traverse. Like I'm nothing if I don't have this or I'm all puffed up if, if I have that, if I drive the right car, if I have the right husband, you know, all that stuff. We get very caught up in that. True. I'm wondering what it looks like, what it would look like to have no ego, to navigate this reality with very little or none. <laughs> well, many people in the spiritual communities use Ramana Maharshi as the example of that. 
And the example is that he sat in a diaper and he was that, you know, no ego, no work, no life. And then they get scared about the awakening process. <laughs> right. They end up like the man in the diapers, which mm-hmm. wouldn't be such a bad thing because he really <laughs> have self-realization. Mm-hmm. But so I, I think if we take things gently and just have a process of watching, watching the quote egos agenda, then very, very gradually it's, it's worn away. Some people have a very, very sudden dropping of that. And then there is a period of integration to return to quote, quote, normal life and, and something never goes back to quote normal, but there's still a need to drive a car, make food and function. And when when the awakening process is integrated, you can do that without the attachment of ego. And um, another of my favorites, Ananda Maima, an Indian saint, she would just say everything is the will of God. And she was very capable of walking, talking, eating, cooking, helping people. But she was totally surrendered. Really great thing. What comes to mind is um, something just thought about. It's like the being that so many speak of, it doesn't take away the doing, because a lot of us think that way. Oh, being, so I don't have to do anything anymore. But no, it, it can be anything. Have you mentioned that about non-duality in your book? I have here something from you, but I'll ask you that question later about the non-dual um, idea, perspective. My first question for the second section about your work is, how did you become a writer, Danny? Ah, good question. <laughs> I, I was really scared to write this book, which is a memoir of my experiences, and I needed help. So I actually went to City College for a memoir writing class. And it was a very emotional process to write this book, which is quite candid, as you know. Um, I wanted to be able to write truthfully. And because the a memoir is very personal. I had to go back and think about what really was the truth of this time. You know, what was the truth for the person I was then? And what is the truth now? Um, because I talk about some difficult things, divorce, death, seduction by a teacher, leaving a teacher, near-death experience. You know, these things were not easy to write about and to set the context for them. Did you have new insights? Did you learn new things in the process of writing the book? I did. I'm trying to think of what was new, though. Mainly, I think it was a process of integration and realizing, you know, how far I've gone and how much real dedication I've had. When you look back to what you've done to get where you've, you've gotten, you know, how much hard work and dedication it took. It really did. And that's so true about writing the story. Yeah, we get to see how brave we have been. So I want to talk to you for a moment before I ask you about energy healing, what that is. Why did you choose to become an energy healer? I felt like somehow it chose me. I wasn't (laughs) looking for it. I was guided to Barbara Ann Brennan's book, Hands of Light. And in reading it, I literally had like lightning going through my body. I was so excited 
about her description of energy fields, auras, and the capacity for us to heal as human beings. I had never heard of the concept, never done therapy, never met anyone like her. And I was just so intrigued. I signed up for a four-year training without really knowing what I was getting into. So, so yeah, that sounds like being guided. Right? Yes. And it came very easily to me, actually. Yeah. So what is it? What is energy healing? And how does it work? We're all surrounded by energy all the time. Every, every living thing, an inanimate thing, has an electromagnetic field around it. And healers learn how to perceive, not, not just with the eyes, but how to perceive and work with the human energy field. And it's said that the human energy field precedes our physical body and actually acts as a template or a blueprint for it. And when you can alter or unblock the energy field, it helps people heal physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So you can perceive things or blocks in the energy field before they become physical. And you can help move that energy and therefore people experience healing, verifiable healing. There's anything else involved, Danny, like um, uh, hypnotism or... No, not for me. And um, I work deeply with with conversation to healing conversation to pinpoint um, where someone's issues are, what their history is, and how that appears in the energy body. So for me, it's also about counseling and um, looking at past trauma and soul mission. Like how do your issues relate to what you came here to do? How does your wound relate to your gift that you came here to give? Do you also work with past lives? Uh, When they show up, I I was trained to do some past life healing. I don't do it as a particular methodology like some people do, but I'm very open when they show up just in the session or the person's aware of them to work with the theme of the past life and help move that along because usually people come in with themes that um, repeat themselves. So we look at the issues. That sounds very interesting to me. I'm very fascinated now with all these healing methods and energy healing is one of them. Yeah, that treats me too. And usually it's like peeling an onion, you know, um, you can start with a physical complaint, but everything's connected. And it's always related to something emotional or to a a belief system. And what I found out is eventually you touch the spiritual, that as you peel the layers of the onion, what we're all really looking for is that unity, that oneness. Mm, Yes. And that's one of my questions to you. I guess I'll ask you this question after I ask some other questions. Talk to me for a moment about mystical Judaism or the Kabbalah. Not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Yeah, people pronounce it differently. They say Kabbalah or Kabbalah. They spell it differently. And that's because it comes from a Hebrew word. And when it's transliterated into English, we pronounce it with our English accents. But the Jewish mystical path um, is not one simple path. It's a combination of many, many different 
rabbis and sages teachings that go back really to the time of Abraham. And they, the teachings weren't even written down to like probably the 1100s. Most of them were oral teachings and they were passed from a master to a disciple in small groups. So what we have now in our times is a kind of resurgence of interest in the Jewish mystical path. And there's various teachers, um, modern teachers. Um, it is a path that has a lot of different branches, and all of them are tied to the Torah, the five books of Moses that we call the Bible. So they're intimately related with that text, and out of which there came meditations with Hebrew words and letters. And in the Middle Ages, the Tree of Life was talked about as a way of um, viewing a map of consciousness or the map of creation from heaven to earth. And that began to be used for meditation. Um, there's a path of divine names. Um, and all these different rabbis wrote books and different had different commentaries on different aspects. So it's not an easy question. It's not just one path where everybody agrees, this is what it is and this is how you do it. Um, but there's loads of, lots of wonderful new texts that can give people an introduction to Kabbalah that are quite good. You have experience with um, yogic science and Kundalini science. So I'm kind of a hybrid, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> That's and amazing. one thing in my life led to another. Um, you know, first there was this healing training, and then a teacher at my healing school started this Kabbalistic training where I learned how to use the Tree of Life for the purposes of hands-on healing. And I still do that work. I really love that work. It's profound. And then at some point um, through a friend, I was introduced to an Indian Swami who was an adept, really, in Kundalini science. And at that time, I realized that he could help me because I felt stuck at that time. And I embarked on what turned out to be over a 14-year journey in doing yogic practices to progress on the spiritual path through the opening of Kundalini, which is simply the God, God force within every person. It's not, it's not energy the way people talk about it. It's not sexual energy. It's simply that within you, which is striving to awaken you. And we're each born with that force within us. And it's called uh, by different names in different cultures. Yeah, we do have different ideas. I don't know what that is exactly. I think I've read about it. I have not had the experience, so I don't know. It's great to hear from you that's not related to what some people think. Yeah, the Kundalini. And another thing is yoga. I tried, and I remember not really feeling comfortable with the idea of competition. I noticed that, so I couldn't do practice yoga. I think in New York, and I think I tried in Florida, too. Well, it makes me really sad to hear that yoga is now sometimes viewed as a physically competitive exercise routine, right. which it's not. 
So one thing I learned in my travels is that, you know, first of all, the physical yoga, the asana practice is only one part of yoga. There's eight limbs to the yogic path, including study and purification. You know, there's other yoga. And also the asana practice, the physical practice, was really meant to aid in the progress, the rising of kundalini shakti in each person so that they could open up to the unit of state. And now it's taught as exercise and people are in little outfits and there's competition with their outfits and who can bend backwards better than the other person. And it was never meant to be that. Yeah, that's interesting because I felt it. There's something about it that didn't really resonate. And I think it was that element of competition, especially among women. It's a spiritual path. Yeah, I know. And, you know, in the Yoga Sutras, the first Yoga Sutra says that the path of yoga is really about the cessation of thoughts, that we begin with stilling the mind. So what we have in the West is really not an accurate depiction of what yoga is. Yeah. Have you found a um, yoga practice in the United States that is faithful to that idea, to the original idea? I have, but it was through um, practices given to me by the Swami I mentioned previously that were personal to my level of development. And then every few years, he would give me a different practice. So that's how yoga was meant to be given, you know, to help the individual open. And it was very, very sacred. And the practice was uh, very effective. So let me talk to you for a moment about spiritual seekers. What are the obstacles that they find in these struggles too along the way? And also, like as I mentioned before, I'd love to know if there is a, a point we don't no longer need healing or we don't become seekers anymore. Now we have found and we are here now. Yeah. I mean, the obstacles are the same on every path. Ego, like we were talking about, inflated ego, competition, pride, boredom, giving, giving up too soon, you know, thinking that we've finished before we've finished. Um, I don't even know if there is a finish. Right. <laughs> so that will lead to your other question. True. Um, uh, false teachers, where you stay on a path and there's no progress, but you're addicted to the teacher for some reason, you know, which happens. Um, so those are some of the obstacles. I think you can become a finder. And a great deal of the inner healing work can be accomplished. Um, but I think, as I said earlier, life brings things to our door to awaken us. So you know, under different circumstances. I don't know how we could know that it's ever finished. I think we have infinite potential to learn and grow and become wiser personally. But I do think there's benchmarks where you open into non-dual awareness and it doesn't go away. But that might not necessarily mean you're completely finished. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's one of the things that you mentioned too about non-dual spiritual teachings. In a way, also Zen Buddhism. It's a very straightforward kind of approach. This is it. And 
And this is it. <laughs> There's nothing else to look for, to do. This is what it is. <laughs> Already that, which is true, but it's <laughs> true also that we have stuff to clean up. <laughs> so. I, I agree. Yeah. So there's always a paradox with those questions. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's why you do what you do. Energy healing. That's part of right. The and I also still seek my own healing and understanding because I feel like it keeps me from pride or or overinflation. So if I'm doing my work, then it humbles me, right? Mm, yeah. What a wonderful awareness yeah, to have. So true. I want to ask you the question about divine guidance. How do we know when we are being guided by that voice that is not the ego voice, but a higher self? Yeah, sometimes I I um, tend to be clairaudient, which means I'll hear that voice. And I ask... Um, for guidance, and I'll ask three times. And if I get the answer that's the same three times, I kind of take it as true guidance. Sometimes for people, guidance shows up in the form of synchronicity in their life, where they've been asking for help and then synchronicitously, the right person or the right words come to them. That's very, very common. And it's a sign of help and openness that help is available. Um, other people um, see things, you know, they'll, they'll be more visual and see something that automatically confirms their guidance. Um, so there's hearing, there's seeing, there's feeling. There's like having a gut sense that this is the right thing to do. And that gut sense is very powerful too. Like you just know in your guts that, you should do this, right? Or yeah, you shouldn't yeah. do this. Yeah, true. So true. And what are some of the methods that you recommend, Danny, for listening, accessing that voice, that divine force energy? Well, getting still, which involves meditation, right? And so doing some practice that allows you to drop into your quiet beingness, and then what I used to do a lot was write a question down on a piece of paper and then simply wait for an answer to come. And sometimes it felt like imagination, but I would allow myself to just write the answer. And then I wouldn't look at it for a few days. And I would pick it up after a few days had passed. And usually I was amazed at what was written. You know, it comes from a deeper place. So it is um, very distinct in a way. I'm wondering also if that eliminates some this deep understanding that you have, what life is all about, if that eliminates the fear of death and also doubt. The fear of death disappeared with the near-death experience because I know life continues. So for me, doubt comes up when I doubt some capabilities, uh, which are more of a personality level thing. And I find to help me with doubt, again, I have to get quiet and have a sense of the largeness of my real true self, that it's not this constricted personality that's always doubting itself. So doubt for me is part of the personality. And in a way, it's always there, isn't it? 
on the background? Uh, not always. Sometimes we can have self-confidence. True. Cultivate <laughs> uh, uh, self-confidence because <laughs> when you're in touch with that true self, there's really no mistakes, you know? Mm. Yeah, I love that. We know what we know, <laughs> but we don't really talk about it. And you want to cultivate that grounded knowing, <laughs> you know. Yes, yeah. So we're almost at the end, and I have some final questions for you. But before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? I don't know about a passage. I didn't prepare one, but I would say that I'm really interested in working with people who are on a spiritual path and in the awakening process. I think that since the book has come out, I've been specializing in that because I hear that a lot of people have experienced upheavals in their life on the spiritual path. And I feel that um, I'd like to work with people who would like help in that realm. And sometime in January, I think I'm going to launch a program um, through my website and Facebook that has to do with keys to working with yourself in the midst of the upheaval of awakening. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's a, a great idea <laughs> that we can benefit from. How do you define success? What is to be successful to you, Danny, these days? Being true to yourself. Yeah, Not, I don't define it by money, but the ability to really walk your talk and, and be true to yourself. Love that. And, and just agree. serving people, serving people. Yeah. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself as of today? Well, I mean, one of the, the quote obstacles for me was pride. So I think I've been working with that obstacle, the obstacle of pride that, you know, you know it all and you're already there. So why bother? And, you know, I don't need this. I can do it myself. But there's a kind of humility in asking for help and for a teacher that I certainly went through. I knew I needed help. And then once you know you need help, actually listening to the teacher is difficult, too. They don't often tell you what you want to hear. <laughs> mm, true. So true. Yeah, this is a, I guess, is a lesson for all of us. We all need to learn in a way at some point or some areas in our lives, for sure. And my next question is about unconditional self-love. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? I do. And that's also a difficulty for people, right? Myself included. How do we love ourselves unconditionally? And um, it, it could be a lifetime's work. But the more you align with that true self and that sense of compassion, you have to give that to, to yourself first. Otherwise... You can't give it to others. So it, that's a journey. It is a journey. <laughs> True. Another practice. <laughs> We're so used to comparing ourselves to others as if they're better than us when we really have to learn how to love ourselves. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent agree. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? When I wrote the book, that was my answer to that question, because I had gone through a lot of death of dear ones in my life, teachers and parents and friends. And I thought at that time that if I was going to die, I needed to write the book. So I wrote the book. 
And now if I knew I was going to die, I don't know that I would change anything um, except try to be kinder, serve more people, um, maybe do a couple of the bucket list things like travel, but I wouldn't change anything substantial. I feel like my life is aligned in a way that it that is good. Wonderful. I love to hear that. My last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of now? We're not the body. We're here to learn and we're here to love in the, the deepest sense of the word. Yeah. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for your presence, Danny. So peaceful. I love the way when you speak, I see and I hear the smile. <laughs> it's very pleasant and open. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for being a very good interviewer. I love your questions. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Uh, just go to my website, dannyantman.com, which is D-A-N-I-A-N-T-M-A-N. And if you sign up for my newsletter, I will be sending very infrequent emails, but I do, do send them out for classes. And my book is on the website as well. And I'm also on Facebook under my name, and I do post things on Facebook. There's an email contact form on my website if anybody is interested in healing sessions, one-on-one -on -one sessions. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Danny, for your presence again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Valerie. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Danny Antman and her work, please visit dannyantman.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.